Life Audio. This is Empowering Homeschool Conversations. We want families to come here and gain insightful strategies that empower them to successfully teach diverse learners at home. Hosted by founder and CEO of Sped Homeschool, Peggy Ployer. Our goal is that these powerful weekly conversations will boost your confidence to cultivate the best at-home learning environment for your student. For more homeschool resources, go to spedhomeschool.com. You're listening to Empowering Homeschool Conversations with Peggy Ployer. We'll start the conversation with Peggy and her guests next. Is it hard to spark meaningful conversations with your kids? Whether you're a homeschool hero, planning activities for the next family vacation, or simply gathering around the dinner table, we've got something that can help. Introducing the Daily Family Conversation Starter by best-selling author Katie Clemens. This remarkable book offers 365 imaginative ways to connect with your children in just five minutes each day with prompts like, who made you laugh today? Or what would you do if you had a tail? These simple questions open up a world of laughter, curiosity, and deeper connections. From dinner time to sleepy time, the Daily Family Conversation Starter is your key to creating memories that will last a lifetime. Don't wait to transform your family's daily routine into an adventure of discovery and fun. Grab your copy of The Daily Family Conversation Starter today, wherever books are sold. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. This is Empowering Homeschool Conversations, provided by Sped Homeschool, a nonprofit that empowers families to home educate diverse learners. To learn more, visit spedhomeschool.com. Here's Peggy Ployer. So today we're going to hear from a homeschool veteran, Lisa Walls, about the wisdom she gained while teaching her sons and addressing the needs of her youngest one, who is on the spectrum at home, and how she is now using that wisdom in her advocacy work. So my name is Leilani Melendez, and I am your guest host today for this episode while Peggy is away on vacation. So welcome, Lisa. Hi, thanks for having me. Doing well. (laughs) So you're basically here to share your story because your son has grown up, you have homeschooled him, and you have a lot of encouraging words to share with other parents that are on this journey. Well, yes. And you mentioned uh, homeschooling wisdom that I've learned. And I just want to be really clear. I learned it because it came from other moms, other advocates, other teachers, other paraprofessionals who spoke wisdom into my life and what I was doing. And I can look back on the 20 years that we spent on this journey with my struggling learner to figure out what worked, what didn't, what was hugely valuable, what was really kind of toss away stuff. So if I've acquired any wisdom at all, it really originally came from somebody else. So that's why we're here. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. You know, the, the valuable thing about sharing our perspectives and our stories is just in and of themselves, they're hugely instructive. Um, But even the nuance of what takes place in each homeschooler's journey is instructive too in various ways. If nothing else, when you resonate with somebody's story, 
and you walk away from that remembering a little bit of their journey, you can then extrapolate even more into your own life because we have layers of complexity in each of our journeys, but sometimes those layers mesh and we mesh with uh, people we're learning from or who are mentoring us on multiple levels. And we don't discover that until we reach that next level ourselves, that somebody who spoke into our life 20 years ago is still you know, their journey, their experience, their stories are still speaking to us. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about your son. Okay. Um, well, I do have, I have two sons, uh, but my first son, uh, was not a struggling learner by any stretch. Everything came easy to him. He was gifted. And I thought I had it made in the shade as a mom. I really did. I really thought I could just secondarily, uh, pass, pass off education to as long as they're in good schools, they're fine. And then my second son came along and it was very clear very quickly when he started showing traits uh, of being on the spectrum. He probably wasn't even six months old. Uh, so I had some insight because I was diagnosed uh, with Asperger's when I was 19 and through that process and then learning what I needed to learn in order to develop coping mechanisms and, and adjusting to the environments that I was in, um, I had to come up with some uh, some ways to cope. So I had learned some things along the way, and I was pretty high functioning. I uh, had lots of masks, uh, which, of course, wasn't a term we even used back then, but of course, is now extremely relevant. And, uh, and I thought I, I was going to be okay. So when my son started showing signs. I wasn't alarmed. What I was alarmed at is the other areas of learning that he seemed to struggle in um, because he did have a severe language delay. And that takes everything um, that you think of on the table for just doing some interventions with an autistic learner as they're going through school or as they're learning how to adjust to a classroom or teacher or dynamics with, their, with other students. It takes everything that happens in that sphere and adds a whole new sphere 10 times the size when you have um, a struggling learner on top of somebody who has the, the traits of autism, whether it's, you know, some communication hiccups or the socialization struggles. Um, those, that's already hard enough to help kids navigate through. But when you've got language delays on top of sensory integration, on top of, in his case, he's also dyslexic, which is not terribly uncommon um, to have other language issues coming into the scene because of the sensory integration. So, you know, he actually, uh, we spent some time counseling and, and he ended up under the tutelage of uh, a director from a school specifically for dyslexia. And uh, we did that in the middle of our homeschool journey. And she said that, you know, easily half of her students were going to, who were uh, dyslexic or either autistic, ADHD, or uh, uh, somewhere on the spectrum and also dealing with other behavior issues. So you have, for a lot of these kids, and now the, the new stats have just come out with the CDC correlating all this research as recently as 2020, and almost one in three people who are diagnosed with autism have an intellectual disability of some sort. So it is not unusual, but it does add layers of complexity to their school experience, which in his case was disastrous, um, to say the least. It was, he was failed on every level um, by well-meaning, extremely capable teachers and paraprofessionals and people um, who were providing therapies. But the system itself just, he was one of those who was absolutely going to get caught in the cracks. So, um, it was, so it was, it was a hard decision to pull him out because I, I was a previous classroom teacher. I knew when teachers were really trying hard. I knew when an administration was being supportive. And I can identify that in both schools he was in, grade school, and, uh, we were in two different grade schools at one point. Um, that, that was the case. We had a supportive administration and teachers who were not, um, naive or, 
or dismissive, or they were really being doing whatever they could to be attentive. Uh, but just the reality of being in a classroom, sharing that teacher's attention with 25, 30 other kids. And he, would, he wasn't even in an overcrowded classroom. And he was one of the few with an IEP. So it wasn't he was like in the best case scenario and he was still being failed. Um, he failed first grade and they remediated him. Um, they called it the gift of time. They said, uh, cause of course I was just brokenhearted when I realized that he had not, uh, we'd actually sent him through kindergarten twice and, uh, because he'd started early enough to where we thought he just needed another year and we sent him through kindergarten twice. So when they told us at the end of first grade that he was not going to get progressed, we were just broken. Um, he was already a big kid and he was already uh, twice the size, 95th percentile for height, 98th percentile for weight. He had shoulders this wide and there are these little guys who were in the classroom and they would look up at him at the beginning of the year and they think, is he a third grader? And they were scared of him. He had trouble making friends, which is the worst case scenario for somebody on the spectrum because you already have your own internal challenges. You don't need like help having challenges. So nobody, none of the other kids would approach him. He had to really work, go out of his way to work, to make a friend. Um, and break through multiple layers of barriers there. Uh, so when they were going to hold him back, of course, we had to accept it if he was going to stay in public school. Um, but we were just broken over it because we knew he was uh, already struggling in so many areas. And now we were going to make it socially miserable for him. Not, and, you know, the, the thing about being on the spectrum is a lot of times when you're in that world, and I can relate from my childhood when I had zero coping mechanisms um, and zero, uh, you know, self-interventions, I can remember just being completely oblivious to so much of what was going around me. And uh, it wasn't until there had been like a parent teacher meeting and my parents were brought into the school to discuss uh, where I was struggling that I was even aware there was a problem because I was getting A's on my schoolwork. And um, as far as I knew, my world was fine. And it wasn't until teachers started saying things to my parents like, you know, um, she's really coming across as, uh, you know, socially behind or um, behaviorally. There are some things that concern us uh, about her maturing and, you know, the level she's reaching there. And it wasn't until somebody brought it to my parents' attention, it was even, I was even aware that things were a mess. Uh, because in my world, it was normal to not have friends because I didn't necessarily even want them so much. Um, so, you know, I knew for large part of what my son was going through, he was not going to be, um, it was not going to, it was not going to be a pain point for him. He was largely going to be in his world, which he was, and he was very happy in his world. And his world was, and I know a lot of parents and, and teachers of boys, uh, who are obsessed with, um, you know, superheroes are going to relate, but his world was Spider-Man and Legos. And uh, he was, as long as he had his Lego Spider-Man with him and that guy was in his pocket, the boy was fine. He was, he was emotionally uh, settled. He was, he was, uh, he, there weren't, there weren't a lot of meltdowns for him when they happened. They were for real. And, you know, strangers would get involved and store management would get involved if we were in a public place. So the meltdowns happened, but they were not as frequent um, because he's he's just a very low key kind of kind of guy. And he always has been. Um, so that wasn't happening a lot in the school. So there, were, there wasn't a lot of disruption. He wasn't aware of a lot of what was going on. But we, the teachers, we as his parents, we were extremely aware of what it meant to take a child who had gone through kindergarten twice, hold him back again in first grade, and then also find that he's still challenged enough to where he's not at reading level after repeating essentially two years. And then he got to third grade. And by then, of course, his IEPs had come back. Everybody's trying, trying, trying. Um, 
but and of course he was uh, involved in applications for federal grants for certain sound equipment that would have helped him through his auditory issues. Never arrived, by the way, two years in the waiting in public school for special sound equipment for him. He was supposed to get speakers and there was supposed to be a microphone the, the teacher would wear so that it would kind of generate more directly to him and he would not miss so much of the teaching experience, the auditory learning experience. Um, two years, the stuff never showed up. So now, granted, this was this was a good 15, 16 years ago. Things I hope are better now. However, uh, even if he had gotten that equipment, it was probably too little too late. And at the end of third grade, they talked to me about retaining him another time. And I was done. Um, there's no way you are going to take my five foot four, 150 pound child and call him a third grader again. Um, the kids are scared of him. He, they, he doesn't have friends. Whenever he tries to make friends, uh, they back away. Whenever he tries to do anything physically with them in PE or on the playground at recess, they, they're, they're scared. Um, anyway, it was just layering challenge on top of challenge on top of challenge. And now, of course, there are nuances once you progress in grade school uh, to socialization where it's not just a matter of playing alongside the other kids and being considered friendly and approachable. Now you're expected to engage with the other kids conversationally. And that wasn't happening. Um, I mean, he was a delayed language user. Uh, he didn't start talking until he was almost three. And the only, I, I truly believe the only reason why he was is because he was engaged in a Montessori at the time. And the Montessori method was employed very well there. And um, in that it was a preschool environment, obviously, at that age. And he had manipulatives and he had um, tasks that were that were exploratory. And it was not a desk classroom situation. It was not a children line up other than, you know, in a group. They, they, they just kind of collaborated all day long as kids and they interacted all day long as kids. And that's part of the method. I was Montessori. And so that's one of the reasons I'm, I was such a big advocate of it for my children. Um, but, uh, and so he did actually adopt language for the first time just at about three years old. And he started using it enough to where he could ask for what he wanted. He could get his needs across. Uh, but it wasn't until about six, seven, eight where you could really understood what he said. So during those formative years, when he's in kindergarten for two years, first grade for two years, um, any intellectual disability that he had, which there were, it was mainly reading language related, um, or any, any neurodivergence he was exhibiting, um, it was just being augmented between the, the, the inability to socialize because he was so much older and bigger, and then the inability to socialize because he didn't have the language uh, or the conversation or the knack for or the desire to even go up to a child and face them and engage with them. Uh, over uh, now, if the kid was in, interested in Lego men, um, he had you know that was my son was like I had I made a friend today, and of course it find you find out that that kid is very also interested in Legos and Lego men. So they had a little conversation about it, and for him that was making a friend because that was the closest he ever got to making a friend in school. After a word from our sponsor, we'll dive back into this conversation. Is it hard to spark meaningful conversations with your kids? Whether you're a homeschool hero, planning activities for the next family vacation, or simply gathering around the dinner table, we've got something that can help. Introducing the Daily Family Conversation Starter by best-selling author Katie Clemens. This remarkable book offers 365 imaginative ways to connect with your children in just five minutes each day with prompts like, who made you laugh today? Or what would you do if you had a tail? These simple questions open up a world of laughter, curiosity, and deeper connections. From dinner time to sleepy time, the Daily Family Conversation Starter is your key to creating memories that will last a lifetime. Don't wait to transform your family's daily routine into an adventure of discovery and fun. 
Grab your copy of The Daily Family Conversation Starter today, wherever books are sold. This is Empowering Homeschool Conversations, provided by Sped Homeschool. Go to spedhomeschool.com to get resources and support for teaching your unique learner at home. So without the benefit of these excellent school systems that he was in, these A-plus school systems, the teachers, as skilled as they were, weren't benefiting him. The administration, as as uh as effective as they tried to be, wasn't benefiting him. The reality is he was just uh, a candidate for all the ways the schools can fail you. Uh, and, and I don't regret any of it, obviously. I felt like as a parent, my job was to be supportive of any intervention that could potentially help, and that means taking risks. If remediating them for a year is the decision, you know, the consensus, it's a risk that, yes, you're going to pay a price. Your child's going to struggle in social development areas or with self-esteem, um, which, of course, that became an issue, too. By the time he had finished his first year of third grade and they had told him he was going to have to do a second one, he had already lost the love of learning. He had absolutely didn't want anything to do with school. It was painful. It was just everything that he equated with the school experience was painful. And you know, I just kept reflecting as a former teacher who was a working single parent by then um, and worked about 50 hours a week. I was just reflecting, A, could I do it worse? Could I screw it up and make it worse than what it is now? Maybe, but the, <laughs> the likelihood was decreasing by the day. The likelihood of me not dedicating enough time and energy to to a homeschool environment, uh, because at this point it's becoming our only option. Because you know, a private school at this stage wouldn't accept him. He was at a pre-K reading level at ten years old. Um, there's no private school that can accommodate that unless they're a special needs school. And in our area, we didn't have it at the time. So um, I, homeschooling was the only option. And, and here I am looking at my schedule, a single mom working 50, 60 hours a week in the family business. The family is counting on me, so I can't slack there. I can't take time off. I can't take a hiatus. Um, can I? Can I even do this? to any level, much less a level that is going to help a child who has just completely had a disastrous experience. Can we ever recover? And I thought the only way we're going to recover is if I do this, if I give it five hours a week and he's 10 at this time. So there is a little expectation that he can be a little autonomous. And again, I was Montessori, so I did have high expectations on that regard. So, um, you know, as long as I can spend five hours a week, he can spend 10 to 15 hours a week where he can focus, which for people on the spectrum, focus is not your challenge. Uh, you know, focus is, focus is the, the, the challenge you don't have. If you're interested in something, it's going to be fo a focus. Um, you know, if somebody has a Lego man in his pocket and he can bring it out and stare at it for 15 minutes and do this, just that motion right there for 15 minutes, steady, and that's all he does for 15 minutes, focus is like your superpower. So I knew we'd be able to develop some of that as long as he was interested in the material. The challenge I had was I had no resources. I had another child who also was starting to struggle in school for other reasons, um, you know, just getting getting um, lost in the cracks, right? And he was starting to have test anxiety and he was starting to show some anxiety issues. And uh, And I had a job that was all consuming. So my job was to just accept that it's not going to look perfect. It's not going to be ideal. I'm not going to be able to teach so much as I'm just going to be used to direct and coach. Uh, so I'm not going to get, you know, um, a lot of time with them one-to-one, -one, but it's going to be enough to maybe definitely do better than what we were experiencing and maybe recover some of what he lost. So anyway, that is a long uh, foundation to just share the upshot. The upshot is we homeschooled uh, for two months and it was crazy disaster because of course I'm trying to replicate traditional schooling because that's my mindset or Montessori experience and we have no manipulatives and they're already beyond the age of really needing them. Um, and 
you know, so I, I had a terrible homeschool experience for two, two and a half months. I went to reset and just say, and this was before there was online resources. This was before Facebook. This was before, well, it's like the advent of all of that, right? The very beginnings of all of that. So I didn't know that there was such a thing as de-schooling. Um, but I looked at the situation after two months and went, oh my gosh, we've got to do something. This is not working. Let's reset. I've got 10 months to teach material that I know if I had at least an hour one-on-one with them a day, because I ended up doing both boys, uh, an hour one-on-one with them a day, we could probably get this material done in three or four, because I knew how much time was wasted in the classroom with classroom management, with administrative paperwork, with just administrative tasking, um, with things that we could just cut through and get it done. So I, 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 I kind of made the decision knowing that, that I could take the pressure off myself and step back. So we ended up de-schooling without even realizing that was a thing or it's important. We ended up de-schooling for about four or five months. And in the spring, I said to the boys, okay, it's time to get back on track. We got about four months to learn a year's worth of material, but I think you can do it. And they kind of looked at me like I was half nuts. I mean, they had spent the de-schooling time reading, watching movies. We had just, you know, had discussions. We worked on literacy because obviously my younger son struggled with that. He was at a pre-K leaving reading level at 10 years old. So um, we just working on some fundamentals found, you know, and my other son also needed some de-schooling time with his anxiety. And he had also lost the love of learning. It was just about undoing all of that and unraveling it letting it rest, and then reworking to a new design. And the new design was simply um, checking in on them for 30 minutes a night after, you know, giving them some basic tasks. This was the very beginning of Time for Learning. It was the brand new thing. They only had a few modules back then, but we did the math and we did the science. And they, and of course, I was setting some reading language assignments for them based on the books and movies that they loved. So it was very unit driven. So it was very simple for me to plan out um, and checked in with them 30 minutes a night and gave them about an hour or two on the weekend where we just went through and, and I sought opportunities to find out what they wanted to learn about. And then we discussed what that would look like. And then I started developing lessons for the next unit. Um, and with, in the first couple months, of course, we didn't do anything. Um, but he started taking some online diagnostic, uh, and, and reading assessments in that spring before we even started just through the two months of a disastrous homeschool experience and five months of de-schooling, he had increased a grade level in reading just from being given books and audiobooks, just being handed that, no instruction, no intervention, no help, nothing, just some books and audiobooks. He advanced from pre-K to end of, K, end of kindergarten learning. By the time we had done our four months of schooling, because we finished at the end of June, he went from the end of kindergarten where he tested um, early in the spring to end of fourth grade. So he was at level even a little bit above level for a kid who had been 10 years old and tested pre-K for his reading. Um, it was astonishing. And I can tell you, I did not do all that much. What I did was I released them from the parts of school that they found were not a fit for their learning style, for their energy level, for their personality. Um, I didn't strap them to a desk. I just said, go. I said, go when you want to sleep until you need, until you're finished sleeping and go. And just releasing that increased both of them performed much better at the end of the year test that I ever expected. But I did not expect him to advance four years of reading levels after just four or five months of, uh, again, unit studies based on the novels they loved, based on the stories they loved, based on the movies they loved. So, of course, we hit it all. We were, you know, we were Star Wars people and, we were, you know, obviously superhero people. We were Harry Potter people. And they, the biggest goal I had um, was just to undo the damage 
uh, and the, the biggest challenge with that was for them to regain their love of learning. And when they in, con- were confronted with the opportunity to, um, to direct their own learning, they did not sit and waste it. And this is the story that I think it really resonates with me that I've heard from all these other parents all these years, 20 plus years in this environment is the kids step up. They step up when they're ready. I mean, some of them, they have to de-school. They have to, uh, they have to get to a level where they're feeling a little comfort level with the activity they're doing or the curriculum they're doing. I get that. There's, there's sometimes a little up ramp in that, that mo- until that moment. But when they get it, when they're engaged, they're engaged powerfully and you, you, you would have to stop them. You would have to actually step in front of them and say, stop working. Um, we've got to move on to something else, or we're taking a break, or we're taking a week off. They want to go. They want to keep going. And look, my kids are not some, um, and I've heard this from so many other parents, my kids are not poster children for hardworking, you know, perfect integrity, uh, adult-like character kids. They're normal kids. They loved video games. They loved sitting around on Saturday morning and just watching TV and, oh, mom, every time I turned it off. You know, so they they were those kind of kids. They were just completely um, I mean, obviously we did go to church and we had other things in our lives that, that expanded into the faith arena, but from the outside looking in, they were like any other kids of this world. Uh, they were video game kids. They loved movies. They loved television. They, you know, they wanted to do the dish or they were willing to do the dishes. Um, but nobody, nobody really wanted to do the dishes. You know, they would step up when asked, but they would have to be asked, you know, um, they were very normal that way. And, they, uh, you know, sometimes the dishes weren't perfectly clean. Uh, sometimes uh, they balked a little bit at when being asked to step in and, and co- help coordinate it. Because, of course, the homeschool experience we had was, I'm working so much. If you guys are going to learn at home, you also have to help at home. It's just the way it has to be. There's too much going on for you to just sit and receive. You've got to actually step up and give. And, you know, then again, in the Montessori framework is making help and work accessible for kids so that they have successes and that they're doing it well and that they know how to eventually do things to a degree of real uh, polish and performance so they can actually look back at the work they've done and be extremely proud of it. So if the dishes weren't done perfectly, nobody got upset, but there was a moment to go back in the kitchen and say, all right, see this, I found this and that's okay. Hey, it happens. You, this is something you have to watch for though. And then rewashing the dish and show them how to sometimes, yes, you have to get out the scraper and this is the, you know, but it's gotta be where they can reach it. You know, you can't expect that to to reach adult level performance in some of these tasks and chores and then not actually give them access to what they need to do it with. So it was it was a uh, refresher for me on the Montessori front of that philosophy. But it was also it was one of those experiences where you almost couldn't fail because the student led learning environment is powerful to engage that student internally and give them drive. So they had more drive to succeed than any teacher had ever had for them to succeed. Not that they didn't have wonderful, dedicated teachers, but their teachers were not them. Their teachers were not personally involved in this experience. When you're personally involved in an experience, there's no telling what you can do um, once you're engaged and powerfully want to achieve something. And they did. They wanted to, uh, my older son, who had been a gifted learner early on and was showing signs of of just anxiety kind of pulling him down. He wanted to be considered bright again. He wanted to be, you know, regarded as somebody who was extremely capable academically. And he wanted to be knowledgeable. He saw that as part of the identity of who he was. So he he still to this day, he's thir- almost 30 years old and he reads voraciously. I don't know anybody, even my husband, who's an extremely uh, well-read intellectual guy. I don't know anybody who reads as much as he does. Uh, he's, he's a continual seeker of knowledge. And my younger son, um, because of his issues with audio, you know, the audiological issues that come with sensory integration disorder, he found that audiobooks were his key to knowledge. And he will, he is one of the most astute, 
uh, in terms of civic affairs, astute people I know of his age, because he listens to podcasts all day long. He's a knowledge seeker and that's where he lives. But it had to be driven based on personal interest and it had to be, it couldn't be my personal homeschool that I was designing um, to succeed because we missed. When that happened uh, in those early months, that was a miss. I couldn't design it, uh, be a fanatic about the minutia of it or the planning of it. I had to give them room to breathe and grow and lead the learning. Once that, once I did that, and, and you know, I've heard this said before in some communities when it comes to de-schooling, de-schooling is as much for the parents as it is for the kids. De-schooling is as much about spending four, five, six months, maybe even a year in reestablishing the framework of who you are as a parent and what your expectations are for yourself and then who you are as an instructor or director of your children's instruction and your expectations of yourself there and then figuring out what that looks like in real life, how that's going to manifest in the day to day, how that's going to lead how you direct them in other ways, um, right down to where you plan to take a vacation as a family. Now, all of a sudden, now you're thinking you're not thinking as a parent. I just want time off and have fun with my kids. You're thinking, I want to have time off, have fun with my kids. And where can we go where they're going to learn something brilliant that they will, that will impassion them for the next year. And so it, it feeds every part of you. So dropping that pure parent hat and, and putting on that parent and homeschooler hat, sometimes it takes months for us just to identify, especially when our kids have been in public school, uh, to identify who we are. Because when your kids have been in public school, you are your child's tutor from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. You are helping them through homework and you are helping them navigate their take-home assignments and their backpacks and making sure everything is in control and on you're on top of things as a parent. Did you get the notice about the play next month because your child has a role and you're going to have to be able to be at rehearsals? Or did you get the notification about the pajama day and do you have something ready for them or all your kids pajamas shabby with holes in them. And now as a parent, you have to run out to Target at 10 o'clock at night and grab a new set of pajamas so they're not embarrassed on pajama day. Um, so that's your role when your kids are enrolled in, a, in that environment. It's a support background role. It's You're still active. Um, but then when you have to, you have to switch over to the homeschooling role, now um, you're no longer being led by a teacher sending notes home, and that's what you're supposed to do. You are the teacher sending notes home, and you're giving yourself notes <laughs> that this Saturday might be a good idea for a trip to the zoo because we just read an amazing book about giraffes, and they're just not getting the difference between giraffes and other animals in the powerful way they could. So I think we need a zoo trip so they can see one in real life because until you do, you really don't understand the whole concept of what a giraffe is. So you get these amazing opportunities to reinvent yourself as a parent and a homeschooler. Uh, so de-schooling, I've heard it said a million times and it's so true, is just as much for the, the parent homeschooler as it is for the kids. Uh, but that was a very, very important part of our journey was to undo, in our case, actual damage that was caused. Um, not by anyone in particular and not even by the institution, just by the way they were, they were exactly the kind of kids who fell through the cracks and so many do. Um, so we were just blessed that we could kind of navigate through that and around that without a lot of assistance and help. Um, and uh, because back then there wasn't a lot, you could join a co-op if you were near one. Uh, I was part of some online forums and groups for some other uh, nonprofit activity I was involved with. And there were a lot of homeschoolers in that environment. And most of them were not involved in co-ops just simply because they didn't live near one. And there was, you know, there was just not an option for that. So when my boys said, well, I'm not really interested in a co-op. I really don't think I'm like, hey, you know what? Lots of parents homeschool without one. Let's try it. Worst case scenario is you just get your group activity in church and that's that's where you focus getting your group activity. And that's exactly what happened for us. But um, yeah, it was the kind of experience that laid a foundation for me. Now, here I am years after they've graduated and I'm still looking for parents stories because 
I feel like, you know, yes, there's more information, there's more accessibility to the information, there's more community for homeschoolers, and that's absolutely needed. But there's a lot of information that works in a practical sense in our real life world. And it either contradicts or seems to, or is not represented in the research that's out there, or there's great research that's out there. And it's hard as a homeschool parent, especially when you're really super busy, to identify the research that you should be looking at, applying how to apply it, and whether or not it's good research. How do you identify that it's even relevant, or is it just fake news at this point? Because there's a lot of that. Um, that's It's not just for mass media anymore. Fake news is everywhere. So how do you discern what the good research is, where uh, the important breakthroughs are happening, and how do you know as a parent what to apply or what new research to even look for? How do we search for this stuff? So I do still see a need for parents to get involved. And even if it's on a level of just supporting your local homeschool families who you know, um, with just whatever you can share. Uh, there is, there is a, a reality that there's a lot that has changed. Like, for example, when I had my son's IEP for the first time, we were going over the IEP, the only diagnosis that he could have was a behavior disorder because his learning disability, his language delays, his autism, all these things that had been diagnosed issues that we paid thousands for a private neuropsychologist to diagnose accurately because we wanted some accurate reports. All of his issues, none of them were represented in the IEP. They had to make up scenarios in his eye because they know he they knew he needed social help, but they knew he needed behavioral help, but there was no box they could check. So now, of course, the IEPs are a little bit better. They're a little bit more on target. Uh, there are diagnoses included in there that are more relevant to people on the spectrum. Um, but back then we had to basically charge that he had, uh, uh, he was aggressive. His behavior was aggressive. It wasn't really, certainly. I mean, unless you took his Lego man, if you took his Lego man, his behavior might get aggressive, but we had to kind of make that up. The teachers kind of had to go, yeah, I guess that, yeah, I guess we'll just check that box just to get him something. So now things are certainly better and they're changing for the good. But here's the rub. We have more people being diagnosed on the spectrum. Just in 2010, it was one in 80 something. Now it's one in 36. And the stats are just staggering. Um, 400% increase in diagnosis over the last 20 years. As four times the amount of kids are being diagnosed now than were just 20 years ago when mine were. Um, so we have four times the kids being diagnosed since the day when mine were. And since the 70s, when this was 60s and 70s is when this is start, was really starting to take off as an area of interest for uh, sociologists and psychologists and uh, pedagogical studies. So back in the 60s and 70s with the earliest research, we have something like 40 times the number of kids being diagnosed now that we're being diagnosed back then. Um, back it, then it was like one in a thousand six hundred or something, and now it's you know one in thirty six. It's just it's staggering um, the change that has made, and there's been an increase in the data recently in the num the amount of minority students being diagnosed. Now that could absolutely been because they were an underserved community for so long in terms of diagnosis and interventions, and in in getting the testing. That's very likely. Uh, but the fact is that means there's more being diagnosed there than expected. And now we have more increases in those communities as well. So what are you to do if you are um, on the spectrum and you have a disability and um, you're a challenged student and you're a minority potentially not receiving the services or the proper services because the person who's supposed to advocate you to the system, maybe English is their second language. How is a parent whose English is their second language um, going to be the most effective advocate when they struggle to identify the terminology that's being used? You know, parents, English speaking parents have a hard time with it. So there are lots of underserved groups and there are lots of groups that I think are crying out for a better understanding and a better 
sense of the research that is, that could potentially help their child and help their child's teacher. And if you're a homeschooler, you're all about the research because you it's up to you. If there's anybody who's going to get better at understanding this, it better be you as the homeschooling parent. So it's, I have. Oh, mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I have I have a question. Um, mm-hmm. Going back to your son, I wanted to ask you the transition between schooling and then, you know, getting a job and becoming independent. Like how, what did that transition look like? Was there a transition? How long did it take? Because how old is he now? Um, my autistic learner is 27. Okay. Yeah. I knew he was almost 30. So I'm just kind of curious what that looks like, because I know a lot of parents are wondering, like, okay, how do I know that I was successful or what? Like, almost like they don't know what's going to happen, but they're still concerned. Does that make sense? It does. And that's a really important question. And that is certainly the question I had in my brain from the time that my youngest was about 13 to 17. It was the, the prevailing thought of the day is, what is, what's going to happen in five years? Is he going to be working? Is he going to be in college? What's going to happen? And there was no way to predict that. The challenge of the spectrum thing is that it's very hard to hear what's going on with other kids and families and adopt that into your own environment or adopt that as, oh, that's a path we can follow. Because chances are your ASD kid is somewhere different on the spectrum than the other ASD kids. So you could be very close with a parent who's also dealing with a a spectrum kid at the same age, and they could have completely different paths because their spectrum disorder affects their life differently. Um, For example, my, uh, because my son was language delayed and language has always been an issue, uh, there is no way that he could really, really get a job in customer service. And, you know, for a lot of us, that's how we put ourselves through college or customer service jobs or sales jobs. And if you gave him a script, he could sell. And he's done that before. Um, he just doesn't like it because he has to step in front of people all day. And that's exhausting for him to be in front of people all day. Um, but he could do it. But what he wouldn't be able to do is be on the phone with somebody with an audiological issue, uh, with sensory integration issues in an environment like a typical office environment, and talk on the phone to somebody and try to get their needs met. That's He, he would misidentify a lot of what they said. Um, so the language delay in autism does sometimes have effects down the road uh, that will translate to identifying ideal jobs for them. His ideal, uh, like, get you through college job is actually kind of like a manual labor job, which is not uncommon. And um, so this is like the first time him being, you know, like a huge kid has really worked in his favor because uh, he can haul and lift and do all that kind of stuff. And he loves anything where he's assigned um, a role to take care of a space or spatial uh, experience. So like um, organizing shelving, um, you know, so any retail establishment that, you know, so he, what I'm trying to say is every situation is going to be unique. That is not going to be everybody's situation. There are plenty of people on the spectrum who have perfectly appropriate verbal skills for any job they want, um, that, but they still have issues to deal with related to sensory integration and stuff like that in the office place or in the workplace that do affect them. And that's the research that I'm passionate about right now. And that we're launching into on our end is helping people who have, who want to launch into a career, but they're struggling because of something in their autism experience is creating a barrier for them and their chosen profession. So it's almost like the homeschool parent has to be very in tune with their child as they're growing up to see what what their strengths are so that as they move into adulthood, they can kind of help guide them into whatever career path or what would help them become more independent. Yeah, I would say for an ASD child, strengths are not as important as interests because okay. there are a lot of strengths that people have that are skills that they end up building. 
And when you're on the spectrum, a lot of your lack of skill is just simply because you haven't tried it before because you've been in your own little universe and you're kind of happy where you're at. So you people haven't pushed you out of your comfort zone and you haven't tried something new. But once you try that new thing and you get a little sophisticated at being able to do it, it becomes a skill. And then you end up probably doing it well enough to have a job in that area. But you're not going to get there unless there's an innate interest in that job or that that career path, um, you know, and if, if your child is extremely musical, uh, you know, they may not ever want to get on a stage and be a performer, but there are lots of jobs in the industry that can keep them fed and help them provide for a family in the future if they, if they want to be in that industry. But if they're interested and passionate about music and that's their obsession, they should try to get a job in the industry. It doesn't have to be as a performer, which is what everybody knows uh, or thinks of when they think of a musician, but there are all kinds of industry related jobs out there. So that you're right. You have to be in tune with what your kiddo can not only do fair, you know, like obviously I wouldn't um, want my dyslexic uh, language delayed learner to you know, ever be a scribe, right? Um, he'll write things backwards. So you don't want to set them up for failure, put them in things which are obviously the wrong category for them. But that doesn't mean they can't take their interest and develop a skill set in an area that's just new to them and then become really, really good at that. Just, it, but it has to be an interest first. So interest first, skill later. And these skills can be developed in early adulthood, 15, 16, 17, um, there's, you know, in most homeschooling families who, who have their kids at that level, they're like ready to graduate. They realize that most of what they learned at the high school level, they actually learned in the last two years. They were kind of maybe flaky or not real mature about the way they were approaching things back at 13, 14, 15. But now they're focused and they're ready to go. And this is a huge opportunity for parents who have kids who are about to graduate and they have no idea where they're going to be, well, have those conversations because it's not too late to jump in on what they're passionate about because it may have taken them this long to figure that out. But don't think, well, they're already 17, so they're graduating next year. So there's really nothing we can do. He's going to have to work, you know, at Walmart. The rest. No, no. He can pick up a passion at, at 18, develop some skills and break into that business at 19 or 20 and apprentice and learn on the job. Um, it's never too late uh, for your kid to take an interest and develop a skill. And so and a lot of us are finding, too, we need to be patient and not call the, their 18th birthday their date of graduation. Um, for my boys, they studied for the GED because they wanted to finish early. And then they realized the colleges they wanted to go to didn't require it. They just required, you know, entrance level exam. And so they're like, why am I sitting for the GED? That's crazy. So they just entered college and that was the right choice for them. But if they would have sat for the GED or if they wanted to sit for the ACT, um, they could have done that. That's not a problem. We could have gotten them some coaching for my younger son. You know, obviously his language issues would come into play with testing. We could have gotten him some coaching or we could have made the decision that we made that he would go to a design school, which couldn't care less about his AT ACT math score. He just had to show up with some talent, some passion, a few skills, and they would do the rest. Okay. So it's almost like, because um, <clears throat> I'm thinking in the public school system, they have like this cookie cutter, you know, and comparing kids with comparing kids, but having them at home just builds their confidence because you are focused in, on all of that. Well, and think of it this way, when they're at home with you, you are offering them an opportunity to really get deep and explore who they are at a very personal level because you as a parent educator are dealing with them one-to-one -one. and they don't see themselves as as achievement as a social thing other than you, sometimes you have to collaborate as a team to meet a goal uh but you know their their desire is going to be very individual to them naturally because they're used to having that one-to-one -one coaching having you as a teacher focus on them and explore and expand what they want to know and what they do know so they're naturally going to seek out uh what is best for them they really will in the same way when you handed them 
a, a reading assignment and they picked a book they loved and that 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 performance on that paper that they wrote about that book was stellar because they loved the book F- help them find a career path they love their performance will be stellar because they love that path yeah. so and it, sometimes it doesn't take a GED it doesn't take a diploma um, sometimes it doesn't even take college so uh, you know for a lot of our students, that's becoming less and less necessary because of the level of self-directed learning you can do as an adult online. I just, it's amazing. You know, back years ago when my boys were first doing online learning from home, Khan Academy was only just beginning. And now there are parents who use that exclusively and they're college students who are making up for years of uh, problematic public schooling by just taking a year off, going into Khan Academy, catching up, and then enrolling and doing stellar in their college experience. So there's there's no one path. Okay. I actually, there's some comments um, oh, and um, some questions. Well, there's one question, some comments. So just a few of the comments, then I'll ask the question. So I think autism has always been commonplace, but it's just so happens that more people are seeking evaluations. And then when I was in public school, I was forced to focus on academic subjects rather than art classes, which made me upset because I wanted a career in visual art and still do. I'm now planning on going to art school for illustration and getting my master's degree in curriculum development. Uh, My goal is to develop secular homeschool illustration curriculum. And so then the question yeah that's that's an example of um pursuing interest so then the question is have you tried aac with your son um aac no uh no we were we just did uh literacy based unit studies and then when he went to a school for dyslexia to get coaching there uh, that director uses Orton Gillingham. So he did get some Orton Gillingham in there for two years, mm-hmm. but I was wondering that too, the Orton Gillingham. Gillingham. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And AAC, I have not tried AAC. A, huh? I've not tried AAC. What is that? Yeah. I don't know what that is either. So if you just <laughs> so comment I'm, again and let us know, cause, um, that's interesting though, about the more commonplace versus more diagnoses. I agree. Absolutely. We're getting better at diagnosing it. Um, but the, the, the latest research that is just to die for fascinating has been in the area of nutrition. Uh, Just saying, um, as our food supply becomes more and more processed, these affects of autism, and I agree you either, it's, it's one of those things. And when they test at the audiological level, they can tell, uh, you either have it or you don't, uh, there are certain behaviors that will mimic, that are mimicked in other issues. Like for example, there are lots of overlap in certain kinds of social issues between ADD kids on Ritalin and autistic kids. So you have some, some overlap in other diagnoses, but there probably is a threshold of people who are, because they have the audiological disorder that it, well, as my son's audiologist put it, all audiologist, all children who are diagnosed autistic have this disorder, but not all children who have this audiological disorder are diagnosed autistic. So there are a lot of people out there struggling with sensory issues and they're just managing, they're just dealing. And if they were thoroughly tested, they might pop up as somebody who, who should have been diagnosed as autistic. So yeah, we are getting better at diagnosing these things. Absolutely. But I would absolutely also say one of the issues that we're having in the increase is nutrition based and the fact that our food supply has changed dramatically since the sixties and seventies. So yeah. there, I think it's both, right? Both are, 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 are at work there. But I love the idea of, you know, taking the passion of visual arts, turning that into curriculum that people could use. And I mean, that's hugely supportive of the autistic community because when your language delayed, uh, you're often your spatial awareness is off the charts. And therefore you can really be taught deep intellectual lessons visually 
where maybe language doesn't apply yet. And I know with your daughter, you use sign language and sign language is often used as a tool for, um, uh, for autistics who are thoroughly language delayed, but that can be expanded because there's a whole area of learning we don't often understand because it's so easy to observe and test people when they have a communication behavior that's verbal. Uh, not so easy to test communication behaviors that are nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And it's just harder, to, you know, because of the nuances of how we've been uh, assimilated and in culture and families, uh, you know, so and there's just not been as much testing in the nonverbal sphere, but visual, spatial understanding and what we're starting to understand now about how the brain works. And when one area shuts down or is not as strong, it makes it adapts in other areas. And we have potentially huge opportunity to help kids develop spatially where maybe they're still struggling verbally and then we can wait for the verbal to catch up, uh, which also is language delay issue is sometimes it's just a delay. They're not ready yet. They're not ready to speak. They're not ready to read. It's not that they won't. Um, it's, but it's, and then of course it becomes a, a trial and error when they learn how, what therapies are they going to need? Because if they're that delayed, they are probably going to need some assistance in speaking clearly and, and, uh, certain other effects of language development. But, uh, but yeah, that's great. A curriculum designed for that. Please, please. That's awesome. So she did uh, respond and say AAC actually stands for Alternative Augmented Communication. I'm going to have to look it up. I don't know what it is. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, academic background is in communication and sociology, Uh, but because I've been in business for many years at this point, my research, my fundamental research is really very outdated. So I'm going to want to go look into that and see what yeah. we can learn. Um, so, yes. Okay. Well, we're coming to the end of the interview. Um, I just want to thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on and spending time okay. with me. So for everyone else, at the end of this month, Peggy will actually be back and we'll be hosting three more episodes with homeschool veterans who will be sharing more wisdom learned from the trenches of home education struggled learners. So until then, take care. God bless. And thank you for being part of the conversation. Thank you so much. take just a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on this podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. This has been Empowering Homeschool Conversations with Peggy Ployer. Hi, I'm Zach. And I'm Randy. And we're from Salty Saints Podcast. We're a theology and apologetics podcast. To find out more, subscribe at lifeaudio.com.